it's the 16th of December. Welcome once again to Here Comes Christmas from Paul. And from Rachel. Hello. Hi. Rachel, I don't know about you. I think this is one of the most un-Christmassy Christmases that we've experienced so far. Are you feeling Christmassy at all yet? Well, no, I'm not. And usually we'd have had at least one carol service and possibly a couple of concerts. And we'd be going into the really big carol services this coming Sunday. And it just gently grows, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Um, But this year, yeah, it's just... Not quite hitting the point, is it? It still feels like October outside, doesn't it? And uh... Yeah, I've just walked the dogs and it was really mild, actually. Yes, a nice summery afternoon. OK, Irving Berlin would not be impressed. It's not going to be a white Christmas this year. <laughs> I don't know. I heard something on the radio this morning that we've got a cold snap coming down and it could well be a white Christmas. <laughs> so let's cheer ourselves up with um, tales of what happened long ago on this day. Well, interesting you say, because Beethoven was born, they think, on this day in 1770. They're not quite sure. OK. Things were different back then. <laughs> Beethoven, famous for writing the theme tune to World War Two. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Ba-ba-ba-bum. I know, but it just happens that that rhythm is the Morse code for V. It's a bit ironic, isn't it, that we chose a a German composer to symbolise victory for ourselves. Totally ironic, yes. But but he was actually very much a man with a philosophy for freedom, wasn't he? He wasn't uh, in any way a warmonger. He was a man of the people. Hmm. Interesting you say that because Napoleon was his absolute hero and he dedicated the Eroka Symphony to him. He did. And but, then he changed his mind and, yeah. and tore it up afterwards. Well, he scrubbed he scrubbed out the dedication at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So you can see copies of it. And he was obviously in a right mood because he, he was the most incredibly grumpy chap. <laughs> so he had two things against him. A, he was grumpy. And B, he smelt. Well, none of us are perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> These are sort of fundamentals, I do feel. Yes. But really sad that he turned deaf. He had dreadful tinnitus, which then increased his grumpiness. And he experimented with all sorts of ear trumpets. He would cut the legs off grand pianos so he could have them on the floor so that he could pick the vibrations up out of the grand piano. But so sad, it still couldn't get through to him. And he conducted the first performance of his Ninth Symphony. And at the end of it, the crowd was going absolutely wild and the leader of the orchestra had to stand up and turn him round so he could see the audience. So sad, isn't it? He had conducted it without actually hearing a note of what was being played. It was all in his head, wasn't it? And he'd written it all without being able to try it on the piano or anything. Absolutely incredible talent. Mm. Well, they say that his last words were, I shall hear in heaven. Oh, I hope he does. I know. <laughs> okay, good. Well, he he has one more quote mm-hmm. that I like and I can empathise with. He says, to play a wrong note is insignificant, but to play without passion is inexcusable. Good. So all the wrong notes that I played passionately are excused. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Great.
<laughs> yes, sorry. Do you think we've done enough on Beethoven? Okay. I could go on for with him for a long time. but Anything else significant happened on this day? Yes, absolutely. It was the Boston Tea Party. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll talk about the Boston Tea Party. All right. So the Boston Tea Party was an event, strangely enough, in Boston on this day in 1773. And it was the, the first kind of um, revolutionary event uh, that presaged the American Revolution. Mm. Uh, they were The colonists in the, uh, the New England states were quite fed up of being taxed by the British government. And the British government was hard up in the 1760s. Nothing much changes, does it? And uh, they needed to raise money. So they taxed everybody in sight, including all the colonists in uh, the Americas. And they taxed them for everything they could think of. There was not only taxes on tea, but on paper and uh, playing cards and any bit of printing they did on all kinds of drink and other things. And uh, eventually, the New Englanders said that we've had enough. We're not going to be taxed if we've got no representation in the British government. And uh, Totally understandably, isn't it? That's fair enough. Mm. Okay, so they got fed up and they uh, one day decided they'd throw all this imported tea into the harbour uh, um, to protest against the tax on tea. And it was also a protest against the monopoly of the... Um, East India Company that imported all this stuff as well. So, yeah, that was the start of the American Revolution, mm. uh, which spawned a lot of other revolutions around the world as well, and eventually led to the first written constitution for a, a country, uh, which also was imitated around the world. So it was a, a very seminal event for history. Yes, and Tina who is going to read a poem for us in a moment. Her great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was one of the two people who signed the American Independence Gosh, that is document. What's very it called? impressive, the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence. Yeah. So uh, what are we leading into here? Well, we're leading into a little poem that I found about the Boston Tea Party mm-hmm. because it was actually a very complicated issue Yes. set of issues. But we've got Tina reading a children's poem called The Boston Tea Party by Paul Perrow. Sammy lived in Boston and he loved to drink tea, but one day something happened that made him angry. A king in a faraway land said, from now on, every time someone drinks a cup of tea, they must give me a dime. This did not seem fair to Sammy, the king lived so far away. Why should he care what Sammy drank? And why should Sammy have to pay? Lots of people agreed with Sammy. There was a lot of frustration. People made speeches with long, clever words, like taxation and representation. So Sammy got some friends together, and the rebellion began. They knew where the king kept his tea, and they came up with a plan. Sammy was a little worried that they'd be recognized. So they dressed up as Red Indians and went out in disguise. The tea was kept on three ships, docked in the harbor. The ships were called the Dartmouth, the Beaver, and the Eleanor. They climbed aboard the Dartmouth first and quickly found the tea. They found hundreds of boxes and threw them in the sea. Next they boarded the Beaver and found where the tea was stored 
and just like they had done before, they threw it overboard. Then they moved to the Eleanor and did the same thing there. They spoiled all the king's tea because he'd been unfair. They hadn't wanted to steal the tea because stealing things is wrong. They'd wanted to teach the king a lesson. That was the plan all along. The next day everyone was talking about the tea that Sammy had sung. They called it the Boston Tea Party, even though no tea had been drunk. Okay, thank you, Tina. That summed up uh, hours worth of history lessons that I had at school in a pretty neat little <laughs> summary. It's about like horrible histories, yeah. isn't it? I'm all for simplification. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Great. Okay. So. Is it time for a song? Yes. yes. Okay. So back in the 1970s, Bing Crosby was on the tail end of his TV career. And he, of course, recorded the biggest Christmas hit of all time, White Christmas. But Bing died in 1977, just five weeks after recording his final TV Christmas special. And that show featured a rather unlikely duet between himself and the young David Bowie, who was a rising star at the time. Uh, They were scheduled to sing The Little Drummer Boy, but Bowie said he didn't like the song very much. So they had writers come up with a, a counter melody for him to sing called Peace on Earth. And they sang it on the show and it became a hit. Well, several times over, actually. So we've got a homegrown version for you now. And this time, following in Bing and Bowie's footsteps, it's our son, Joe, and his partner, Charlotte.
I do love that song, don't you? Mm. <laughs> and those two melodies, completely different. You wouldn't put them together, and yet they fit so nicely together, don't they? They do. Works very well. Excellent. Our interview today is with our friend Olive. She supports CAFOD, which is the Catholic Agency for Overseas Development, and also Crisis at Christmas, which help the homeless, particularly at this time of year. If you're struggling to think of presents and know that the person you're buying for doesn't want or need more stuff, or if you'd like to make a difference, then take heed of Olive's wise words. For the last number of years within my family, I've decided... We have got past the point where we need anything. You know, we've all got enough toasters and whatever else you might want on your Christmas list. And rather than buying each other yet another pair of socks, which we don't want, we've been using CAFOD or something similar to buy a gift. So a couple of years ago, when my youngest and his then girlfriend, now his wife, were in India, I bought them a toilet for people in India um, and that that sort of thing. And I think there's quite a number of charities do it, um, either foreign aid charities like CAFOD or Oxfam or local home charities like Crisis at Christmas, where you can buy um, a Christmas meal for a homeless person. And, and it's not just the Christmas meal that you get when you give this gift. Um, they will also arrange a GP medical assessment and they'll arrange dental treatment. Um, there's a whole raft of things because once they get the homeless person inside the establishment that they have set up for Christmas, um, they, they can go through a whole gamut of things that will help them increase their personal self-respect, I think is probably what it's about. I mean, I was reading this morning that uh, they have discovered that some of the homeless people in Canada are suffering from trench fever, which was a World War I thing and is passed by body lice. And if you are in a position where you are homeless and you are not able to access means of personal hygiene, this is... So what you will have, and they're also, you know, it, it's it's not nice, it's horrible. So it's it's care for people that you can do with something like, you know, a gift to Crisis and Christmas. Now, CAFOD are asking people to do is to send a Christmas message to the brave. And it's quite horrendous, the number of people who are fighting for climate justice, who are fighting for the ecology, who are fighting to maintain the environment, who are standing up against the ravages of unbridled capitalism like mining and huge agribusiness outfits and so on. And the bottom line is, Rachel, they are simply being killed. And a lot of these people are 
they're they're putting their lives on the line. There which, is which countries are we talking about here, Olive? Well, the ones this year. There's a. Uh, Alfred Buju, who is in the Democratic Republic of Congo, he's uh, he's taking on the mining companies in Congo. And as, as we know, the mining companies, they don't always pay an awful lot of attention to environment and all the rest of it. What are they mining? A, a lot of the mining at the moment uh, in various parts of the world is what it's for rare earth metals which are essential components in all our electronic gadgets. And also, of course, the batteries need lithium, and lithium is mined, and the mining, a lot of the mining involves environmental degradation unless it is done sensitively and carefully. And this isn't always the case. So actually, electric cars are not as good for the environment as they are perceived (laughs) to be at first. There is a a discussion to be had there. The best way of doing transport is to walk somewhere. Um, (laughs) uh, Maybe that is something that we have learned with the pandemic, that um, do we actually need to drive to all these places that we've been driving to? A human rights lawyer, Mezun Badawi, she's in Palestine, in the occupied Palestinian territory, and she is just taking on the cases of Palestinians in the occupied territory around Israel and trying to work on behalf of them. You have an, an, another one is a woman who is fighting for women's rights in Afghanistan. And we have a woman who's working for on behalf of the indigenous people in Brazil. And there, the main problem there is actually fighting against agribusiness that are deforesting the Amazon region and creating ranches. And I mean, last year when we did our How Green Is Our Valley in the Chu Valley, and they were talking about 40 or 50 years of harvests left in the UK because of soil degradation. If you strip the trees out of the Amazon basin and create ranches for cattle rearing, you will only get a few years good and then the soil would become very degraded. They then have to move on and take down some more trees and move their cattle somewhere else. And the indigenous people are the ones who, through their agricultural methods, actually conserved the environment and farmed in sympathy with the environment rather than fighting against it. And I, and, and I think that's one of the things which, you know, we need to think a bit more about are we actually working in sympathy with the earth or are we fighting it and trying to tame it? I've often said that the single most distressing word of translation in the Bible was the one where it said, and the Lord God gave man dominion over them. That single word dominion, please, please, please get rid of it. You know, can we work with the animals? Can You know, they were all created by God. The earth was created by God. We've got to, we've got to work with it. And this is something, getting back to Cafod again, this is something which Cafod try very much to do. And, and I think recent research in the last 20 or 30 years said, you know something, the way they used to do agriculture in Ireland before, quotes, the improvers came along, actually worked better with the land. And I think what we in the West have been doing has been going out and teaching 
the former colonies how to do stuff. And we have sent armies of, I mean, the Americans have Peace Corps, we've had Oxfam, we've, you know, lots and lots of groups like that, that have gone to teach the former colonies how to do stuff. And in fact, what we need to do is to sit back and listen to them and say, okay, what do you want? How do you want to do it? What can we do to support you? And instead of telling them what to do, let's say, let's give them, let's support them. Let them, you know, maybe they will make mistakes. Maybe in some things we do know better, but I suspect what it is. We have more knowledge, but they have more wisdom. And we need to hear their wisdom. And we haven't been listening to it. One of the reasons I like supporting CAFOD is that they tend to work with local groups rather than sending people from England and Wales out there to you know, teach these silly people how they should be farming their land. They actually, you know, they send people out there and they say, OK, who are you? Where are you going? What do you want to do? What can we do to help? And as I say, CAFOD, they have these World Gifts catalogue and they, they, you can buy chickens you can buy a goat. You know, those things are practical, helping things. Buy a child some pens and pencils and papers so they can actually go to school. Far better to get the child to school rather than any, any other way. And I, I like that approach. I like the collaborative approach. And they don't just work with Catholic charities. They will work with whatever is the appropriate body within that community to work. Many thanks to Oliver, and I think she's really given us all cause to think, hasn't she, Absolutely. about the environment and about our responsibilities to the earth. Uh, we'll put the websites that she's spoken about on our website, but there is Crisis at Christmas, which is crisis.org.uk. And then, of course, Oxfam do the gifts, as do CAFOD, which is cafod.org.uk. Three wonderful organisations. They are well worth supporting. Mm, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Okay, time to meet Simon again. It is. Simon's going to give us another verse from St. Luke's Gospel. Our reading today is Luke chapter 2, verse 12. And the angel continued, And this is what will prove it to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And the question is, why would the shepherds believe an angel? The shepherds are expecting a king to save them and their nation, probably with an army following. Kings are not born in an animal stable or to be found lying in an animal trough. So this is a weird message. But that is the scandal and the reality of the Christmas story. Neither the familiarity nor the season's festivities should prevent us from realising the scandal that God came into human history completely helpless, as a newborn, and was laid in a feeding trough. Considering what splendour God might have come. Probably something like the shepherds thought, or had been trained to think. But instead, God slipped unobtrusively into a small province far from the seat of earthly power at the time, born to a young couple, unwed or recently married. No elaborate preparations were made for the birth. 
No pomp and ceremony for a king, all know. God was born on the road. The crib was a feeding trough. And those who came to visit first were shepherds, the outcasts of society, lowest of the low, not kings. By entering human history in this way, I think God was identifying with the powerless, the oppressed, the poor and the homeless. And one thing I know from reading about the rest of Jesus' life, this aggravated and incensed the religious and the royals. Now, that's a scandal. And God knew how this would get up their noses. Is this the God you know? Well, thanks to Simon, and that's all for today, and time to go. And today, I've actually got a special treat for you. I'm not going to tell you a joke. (laughs) You're not going to do the Beethoven one? The Beethoven one. What's the Beethoven one? Do you mean the Beethoven one about his favourite fruit? Yes, I do mean the Beethoven one about his favourite fruit. It's banana, isn't it? It is banana. Banana na. Uh, you've tricked me. You, I said I wasn't going to do a joke. Okay, folks. Really look forward to seeing you again tomorrow. Okay. Take care. Bye bye. Bye.